From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. On today's program, we'll concentrate on the coronavirus and the disease it causes, COVID-19. We'll start by talking with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi. She'll explain what we know about the virus and provide some helpful tips to protect yourself. Then we'll talk with Mayo Clinic lung specialist, Dr. Clayton Cole, about the importance of flattening the curve and what that really means. And later in the hour, a discussion with Mayo Clinic geriatrician, Dr. Brandon Verdorn. He'll tell us what long-term care facilities are doing to try and keep residents safe and prevent spread of the virus. All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our first guest on today's program is pediatric infectious disease specialist, Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi. You'll hear about how the virus is spread and why we're all being asked to practice something called social distancing. And Dr. Rajapaksi will tell us the number one thing we can all do to protect ourselves and our loved ones from this illness. Dr. Rajapaksi explains why it's called COVID-19. COVID-19 stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019. 2019 refers to when the first reported cases of this disease were reported. COVID-19 is a virus that can cause a variety of symptoms. Most commonly, it causes uh, fever, cough, and breathing issues. Coronaviruses, including COVID-19, can uh, create a spectrum of illness. So some people will be very mildly affected, and some people can have more severe disease. So the severity of illness can range from having a cold or flu-type illness all the way to needing to be hospitalized or be in an intensive care unit. Dr. Rajapaksi says children can contract coronavirus, but in general, their cases tend to be less severe. We now have uh, multiple reports of kids who have been infected with COVID-19. Thankfully, it seems that children, uh, if they have symptoms at all, have mild symptoms, uh, maybe some cough, fever-type symptoms. Most of the severe illness and deaths that have been reported seem to be in older adults, so those older than 60 years of age, um, as well as those who have underlying medical conditions, such as underlying uh, heart disease, uh, lung disease, or diabetes. We're seeing the virus appear in many countries around the world, including the United States. Dr. Rajapaksi explains what we know about how it's being spread from person to person. The primary route of transmission for this is thought to be respiratory droplets. Respiratory droplets are usually transmitted when someone coughs or sneezes and someone else either inhales it or touches something that a virus particle lands on and then touches their own eyes, nose, or mouth. Uh, Generally, from coughing and sneezing with a respiratory droplet, those can transmit about three to six feet from the person who has coughed or sneezed, and then they're large enough that they tend to then drop down to the ground. The best thing you can do to protect yourself and your family from getting infected, uh, number one, is to wash your hands. Really, as simple as it sounds, that is the most effective way to prevent illness and infection. The second thing is, um, if you do have symptoms, to practice what we call respiratory etiquette. That means uh, coughing or sneezing into your elbow or into a tissue and then washing your hands well afterwards. Um, We know viral particles that end up on your fingers and hands uh, can be transmitted to other people, um, and so that's one way to protect yourself and your family. 
the other main thing that we would encourage people is to stay home if you're feeling ill with cough and fever especially. Um, this avoids exposing people at school or at work to infection and illness also. Dr. Rajapaksi recommends washing with soap and water for at least 20 seconds, frequently, multiple times a day, after you use the bathroom, anytime you cough or sneeze, and before you eat. She says if you don't have access to soap and water, use alcohol-based hand sanitizer. And beyond cleaned hands, Dr. Rajapaksi says we should be using social distancing from others to avoid that droplet zone of three to six feet that she mentioned. The transmission of this infection is by respiratory droplets in the community setting. And so we recommend something called social distancing or maintaining some space around yourself to uh, avoid uh, being coughed on or sneezed on by someone who might be ill. That also means that if you are yourself sick, um, you should really not be going to work or to school uh, to avoid spreading the illness to other people. These are a lot of the measures that we hope the public can help us out with as we manage this uh, situation uh, in order to kind of decrease the spread of illness as much as we can. Thanks, Dr. Rajapaksi. Up next, Dr. Clayton Cole, the chair of the Division of Preventive Occupational and Aerospace Medicine at Mayo Clinic. He's also a lung and critical care medicine specialist. Dr. Cole will explain a phrase you've likely heard in the news from government and healthcare leaders called flattening the curve. We'll learn what that means and why it's such an important goal in the pandemic. We all need to be in on this effort to make it work. Let's begin with Dr. Cole's definition of flattening the curve. In epidemiology, which is sort of the study of populations, when we look at an illness like COVID-19, at a certain point, it reaches a, a certain area where it, we see a spike in the number of cases and the number of fatalities. And the whole idea of social isolation is to try to bend that curve. In other words, to prevent that big spike. We know that there will be some cases. We know that there will be some deaths, unfortunately, but we want to minimize that as much as possible. And so that's why this whole social isolation thing that we've never seen in our lifetimes going on right now is actually being done to protect the population as a whole. But if we look at other epidemics and other worldwide pandemics, we know that by learning from what we've had in prior cases, things like Spanish flu and uh, plague and things like that, that if we can get people separated where they're not spending a lot of time in close quarters, um, we can really make a difference in terms of minimizing the effects over time on large numbers of people. The idea is to create some distance from each other to slow the spread of the virus and eliminate that spike in cases. So you might wonder, how long do we need to stay separated to flatten the curve? Well, it's hard to know. This virus is very interesting. Our immune systems have never seen this particular strain of virus before. So we have no way to develop immunity. We don't have a vaccine for it at this point. And, and so like many of the novel viruses that come out, it has potential for worldwide distribution. Again, I think all of the epidemiologists, the physicians, the scientists that are all looking at the data literally day by day at this point will we'll look at the data that the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are, are collecting, and we'll make sort of collective decisions about how long to keep people away from each other. 
Dr. Cole says we do know if we can prevent the cases of COVID-19 from spiking, there will be less strain on the healthcare system as a whole. For those individuals who develop severe disease, we want to make sure to have adequate supplies, adequate number of gowns and masks for our healthcare providers to take care of them so they don't get the illness, adequate amount of supplemental oxygen, IV lines, ventilators, things like that that we need. So taking care up front to keep people away and keep away from each other directly and to minimize the total number of cases will be saving supplies and allowing us to really focus the resources that we need for those that develop severe forms of the disease, which will be a small percentage of the total number of people that actually develop the disease. Dr. Cole says it's important to be part of social distancing efforts, if not for yourself, for people who are in the higher risk categories. With any of these epidemics, the the risk is real. Obviously, we know that there are certain populations that need to really focus on the idea of social isolation. And so, as many people have heard, this is um, our older population. And when we say that, people in the 70 to 80-year-old age range and above 80 years old, or those with significant chronic diseases that involve some form of immunosuppression, where the immune system just doesn't work like it normally would. And that could either be from the condition itself or from medications that are given to treat their underlying illness that cause a reduction in our uh, immune power, so to speak. And I think people need to remember that for the average person, that even if they become positive, it's more or less like a regular flu, meaning that, that yes, they may have aches and cough and that. But for a lot of the people that have experienced it, within 24 to 48 hours, they're already starting to feel better. Thanks, Dr. Cole. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll discuss keeping residents safe in nursing homes during the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're discussing different topics pertaining to the COVID-19 pandemic. Up next, Mayo Clinic geriatrician, Dr. Brendan Verdorn. You spend a fair amount of time in nursing homes. I do, yeah. So I'm the medical director at a couple of nursing homes, and then also have a pretty substantial clinical practice in the nursing homes. What's it like in the nursing homes right now? The most that I know is that you're being asked not to visit them. Absolutely. So I, I think like we're seeing everywhere in our society, it's it's just a completely unprecedented sort of situation. And to your point about visitation, that has gotten quickly and progressively uh, more strict over the last couple of weeks. All right. So it's an older population, a lot of whom have chronic diseases. So they've definitely got risk factors for coronavirus. Do you Have you changed any of the things that you do in the nursing home, any regimens that you have changed to try to prevent it? Absolutely. So there's lots of things happening. And this is, as you might imagine, evolving day by day and hour by hour. On the details of the visitation piece, essentially where all the local facilities I know about right now are at is is almost universally um, restricting visitation. So the only exceptions that are getting made for that at the moment are if you are a loved one of a resident of the nursing home who is, you know, unfortunately in their last 
days of life and you need to visit that person before they pass away that assuming you are not ill with coronavirus and don't have symptoms of that you would be allowed to enter and visit your loved one really beyond that extenuating circumstance uh no visitors and this is it's important to point out i think this is not a rochester or a mayo policy this is in accordance with what's being done nationally guidance from the cdc as well as um CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I would think that just like everything else that is uncharted territory, I mean, there must be brainstorming. I mean, what are some of the things that you you and your colleagues are doing as we move forward into this time? Yeah, and so so this is something that if I, if I look at my calendar for the day for the foreseeable future, there's two or three or more coronavirus-related meetings about how do we prepare and what do we do almost every day. And so what are some of the things that we're thinking about? So, for instance, in the nursing home, there is a a law that typically outlines that patients who live there long-term are seen every 60 days for what's called a recertification visit. Many times at those visits, it's not that there's any uncontrolled or acute medical issues going on. It's just because the calendar says it's time for them to be seen. So we're starting to think about, for instance, do we really need to walk into that room to see that patient for that visit, particularly if I'm somebody who's just been in the clinic here seeing other patients or just been at another nursing facility? And knowing that this illness can potentially be transmitted even before people are symptomatic, is there a risk of, as healthcare providers, that we you know, bring it from one location to another? So we're starting to, to really try to narrow in what are the times where it's critical for us to physically walk into that room and examine the patient and what can be done with things like telephone communication or even telemedicine visits where you're essentially on you know skype talking Mm -hmm. to a patient or a a nurse at the facility do you wash your hands a lot absolutely i did my hands you can't see it here but my hands are drier (laughs) than they've ever been because of all the soap and hand sanitizer i've been using do you wear a mask so that's a good question. There are situations where we do. Just to give you an example, we just uh, made a decision among kind of our our provider group here in the, the nursing homes, both locally and in the region last afternoon, that for anybody who has traveled anywhere within the past 14 days, not necessarily to one of the high-risk countries, but anybody who's been through an airport or in a group setting, if we set foot in a skilled nursing facility for 14 days after that we wear a mask at all times have you tested anybody and has anybody been positive now you're we're talking about rochester in the area correct yeah so region so there are several patients i can't give you an exact number several patients in nursing homes or other senior living facilities like assisted living that have been tested none as of this morning i know of that have been positive i think we're still at three confirmed cases in olmstead county and none of those have been in these facilities and this is march 17th yes recorded on the 17th thank you if you did have someone turn positive would you just then isolate them in their room and ask them to put a mask on yeah so this is an evolving question so i think you know, the immediate thing that would happen if somebody developed symptoms while sitting in the nursing home that are consistent with coronavirus is they go into the room by themselves, they have a mask on, the door is closed. Any provider that walks in there is using what's called droplet precautions, which means mask with face shield, gown and gloves, and then they would get tested. Um, Currently, you know, 
we don't have the capability to actually perform the testing in the facility. The options locally right now are they go to the emergency department or there's the drive-through clinics, which are starting to pop up. What we're hoping develops in the coming days is sort of a mobile team that could go around to facilities and test people in place. And then probably what will ultimately happen, depending on how this all unfolds and how many people are infected, is that if you are a nursing home resident and you have the infection and you're sick, then you'd obviously go to the hospital to be cared for. If you have a mild case, then you could potentially stay at the facility and and facilities are preparing very quickly to try to figure out how do we quarantine those residents? How do we keep them in one wing of the facility? How do we not have staff crossing over caring for you know, patients with and without COVID to sort of keep that illness from spreading within the facility. I know right now everyone is looking for ventilators, trying to amass the ventilators. And uh, do nursing homes typically have ventilators there for when a resident needs one? No. So, so the vast there there is one small exception called LTACs or, or long term acute care facilities where they that looks sort of like a nursing home where they sometimes have these. The vast majority of nursing homes do not. So, if a patient were sick enough to need respiratory support and going to the hospital was in line with kind of their goals of care, then they would go to the hospital. Uh, we have seen beautiful pictures of people who are outside the windows of their loved ones. Those folks are lucky enough to be on a ground floor with a window. I know not all nursing homes are like that. If you open up the window so that you can be talking to that person, I mean, you've got a screen in between you, which doesn't do any any bit of good, but those contacts are all that folks have right now. Yeah, and so this is, I mean, this is such a tough balance to strike, right, to try to keep people safe and at the same time, you know, maintain folks social connections and quality of life. I mean, the things that really make us human, right? To comment on the particular open window scenario, you know, with a with an illness that sped, spreads via droplets of screen, it's obviously not going to help. But I mean, there are alternatives, right? So Skype, phone visits. But at the end of the day, that doesn't replace physical connection with one's family. And I think as we're seeing in broader society, all of us are just having to band together and and accept a very suboptimal circumstance for a while, which hopefully allows us to all come out on the other end what better do you, for it. You know? What do you want to tell the general population when it comes to nursing homes? What can we do? Yeah, and so I think the the messages that I would give at this point are, are please respect the the visitor restrictions. And I think most people actually have been overwhelmingly supportive um, of those things. They realize that those are in place to keep their loved ones safe. Uh, the other piece would be be assured that the healthcare providers working in the skilled nursing facilities are doing everything we can to continue taking great care of your loved one. Things may need to change, as we talked about earlier in this segment, about sort of how we deliver that care. But they're not going to be abandoned. There are going to be people there to take care of them, uh, even though you can't be there to visit and see that unfolding in person. Well, we're glad you're on that team. All right. Mayo Clinic geriatrician, Dr. Brandon Verdorn, thanks so much for the update and good luck in the nursing home. Thank you so much. Time for a short break. When we return, why is there a shortage of blood products and blood donors? And what does it have to do with the COVID-19 coronavirus? We'll find out next. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. COVID-19 symptoms can mimic the flu. 
Dr. Clayton Cole, chairman of Mayo Clinic's Division of Preventive Occupational and Aerospace Medicine, says symptoms can come on rapidly. These symptoms can be especially dangerous for people over 70, people with suppressed immune systems, and those with underlying conditions such as lung disease, heart disease, and diabetes. Dr. Cole says that most people who contract the disease will have mild or no symptoms. But if you do develop symptoms, when and how should you seek medical help? Should you get tested? Dr. Cole says the first thing you should do is call your health care provider, local hospital, or clinic. He says it's really important to emphasize that unless it is a medical emergency, you should not go into the hospital or visit your health care provider without calling first. By calling first, you can avoid exposing yourself and others to the virus, and you can help prevent an overflow situation at the medical facility. So general symptoms of COVID-19 include shortness of breath, cough, fever, it can be low grade or high, fatigue, muscle aches. Some people have reported diarrhea. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that if you think you have been exposed to COVID-19 and you develop symptoms such as the cough, fever, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider. If you are concerned that you may have been exposed to COVID-19 but did not have symptoms, Dr. Cole says you do not need to be tested. He says that since the COVID-19 situation is evolving, experts are learning more about the virus every day, so recommendations for testing also may change. So again, he says that means right now. Recommendations are if you are asymptomatic, meaning you don't have symptoms, you do not need to be tested. And Dr. Cole emphasizes that if you think you may have COVID-19, call your health care provider first. But if you experience emergency symptoms, seek emergency medical care. Some emergency symptoms include difficulty breathing, chest pain, confusion, bluish lips or face. If these symptoms happen, call 911. And in other news, frequent hand washing is one of the best ways to avoid getting sick and spreading illness. As you touch people, services and objects throughout the day, you accumulate germs on your hands. You can infect yourself with these germs by touching your eyes, nose, or mouth, or spread them to others. Although it's important to keep your hands germ-free, it's impossible to keep them completely germ-free, but washing your hands frequently can help limit the transfer of bacteria, viruses, and other microbes. Always wash your hands before preparing food or eating, treating wounds or caring for a sick person, inserting or removing contact lenses, and always wash your hands after you prepare food, you use the toilet or change a diaper, you touch an animal, animal feed or animal waste, you blow your nose, cough or sneeze, or you treat wounds or care for a sick person, and definitely wash them after handling garbage. Also, wash your hands when they are visibly dirty. It's generally best to wash your hands with soap and water. Over-the-counter antibacterial soaps are no more effective at killing germs than is regular soap. Now, when you wash, use clean running water, either warm or cold. Apply the soap and lather up well, rubbing hands for about 20 seconds, getting in between fingers and underneath nails, and then rinse and dry. Alcohol-based sanitizers, which don't require water, are an acceptable alternative when soap and water aren't available. If you use a hand sanitizer, make sure the product contains at least 60% alcohol. Now be sure to remind your kids to wash their hands too. Make it easy for the little ones by having a stool handy so they can reach the sink. Hand washing is a simple, effective way to help you stay healthy. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Why is there a sudden shortage of blood and blood products across the country? 
Here's Mayo Clinic transfusion medicine consultant, Dr. Justin Kreuter. To start, Dr. Kreider explaining how the COVID-19 pandemic is having an immediate negative effect. Yeah, the, the novel coronavirus is really impacting uh, the blood supply. Not in the sense of people that become infected, we're not seeing them use a lot of the blood supply. However, where it's affecting us is our ability to collect the blood supply. And so even though people with the novel coronavirus are not using uh, the blood supply, we still have our patients that are receiving cancer treatment, that are going for open heart surgery. We still have premature babies. Uh, We still have motor vehicle accidents. And all of those patients uh, still are needing blood today, and they're going to need blood tomorrow. And our collections have just really uh, plummeted. Dr. Kreuter says some blood collection centers are operating with a one-day supply of blood. So, for example, in the U.S. now, there's a recent article that came out that showed that 20% of the blood collectors in the United States have less than a one-day supply of blood products on hand. Another 25% have about a two-day supply on hand. So that means about 45% of the country's blood banks have about a one or two day supply where we're used to having a one to two week supply. So a significant difference. We don't have that breathing room when we don't have those units to spare. When I only have a one or two day inventory, I don't have those 50 units that we can use on one patient. Uh, That really puts us into making really tough decisions. Dr. Kreuter says the cause of the shortage is due in part to the social distancing that we're all experiencing now. And so people are staying home, they're not venturing out. And so, for example, a lot of uh, blood collection centers do community blood drives. So these large events like that, those are by and large getting canceled out of concerns for having these big, large gatherings. So by canceling these large blood drives, it makes it even more important that people will come into our blood collection centers to donate because that's really uh, our last way to collect blood. But Dr. Kreuter worries that would-be donors aren't showing up either because the collection centers are perceived as a gathering that should be avoided or based on worry that another donor may have the COVID-19 virus. Dr. Kreuter says blood donation centers aren't overly crowded and workers are taking precautions to prevent COVID-19. You know, if somebody is sick, for sure we ask them not to uh, donate blood. And I think there's a cultural understanding around that. So when we go into the donor, uh, any donor center, you're not going to see that. It's going to be uh, a number of healthy people that are showing up to donate. When we collect blood, uh, you know, we go through sterilizing the skin. We're using all new needles and we're collecting blood, taking stuff out of people. We are not putting things in. And that's why it really is a safe environment with regard to uh, COVID-19, the, the novel coronavirus. Uh, it's healthy people walking in the door. Our employees that are collecting that blood are also healthy. Uh, we're having those same protocols. Of if somebody is feeling unwell, they should not report to work. And if somebody gets sick at work, we're sending them home. Because we really want to make sure to keep our workforce that is collecting blood healthy. Dr. Kreuter says this short 
shortage is an immediate problem and one he expects to continue unless there's a big surge in people who are willing to give and do it regularly. Patients are still going to need cancer treatment. Patients are still going to need emergent open heart surgery. Premature babies are still going to be born, and we really want to still give them that chance at life. So we're still going to need people throughout this pandemic to come in and donate, and then we hit into our summer months where we're classically low. And so I think we're really going to need this sustained outpouring of support. And because we know that less than 5% of eligible blood donors donate, we know that there's room in our community to grow, give it a chance, to make it a habit, especially throughout the summer, to uh, come in and either every day donate yourself or, you know, ping a friend or colleague to give donation a chance. We need that, and that's going to make a huge difference and not force us into making those really challenging ethical decisions about those units of blood, those last units that are on the shelf. Time for a short break. When we return, regenerative medicine at Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Download the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast today for the latest complete versions of interviews you hear on Mayo Clinic Radio. Find Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts on your favorite podcast providers. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we have all heard the term regenerative medicine. What does that mean? Exactly. (laughs) What does it really mean? Well, I think it's the field of medicine that tries to replace or to regenerate human cells, human tissues, or even organs to get them back to normal. Now, it also includes the possibility of actually growing tissues and organs in the lab and implanting them in the body that can't heal itself. That's amazing. It is incredible stuff. In short, it's a way to actually repair or replace diseased uh, diseased or injured tissues and organs. And here to tell us more is the Director of Regenerative Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Andre Terzik. Welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you for having me. Dr. Terzik, and it's, it's an honor to have you on the program. So what has regenerative medicine allowed you to do that you never thought possible? It's an exciting time. I think we see successes around all fields of medicine, essentially. I think the breakthrough of the year, for example, is in cancer. We're able to treat many of the blood cancers in ways we never could imagine before. It's a different medicine than what we used to to train in school. We're using a technology called regenerative immunotherapy, also known as CAR T-cells, which is able to target cancer cells and very specifically get rid of them. So instead of, for example, chemotherapy, where it's toxic to all tissues, including the cancer, these are just targeted at the cancer and leave the rest of the body alone? You can almost speak of smart cells in many ways. So you're using your own body to essentially get rid of uh, of cancer cells. And the successes are, are throughout. Uh, another breakthrough of the year is clearly neurosurgery. We saw earlier this year the first case here at the Mayo Clinic where a patient that was quadriplegic was able to be treated successfully with uh, stem cell intervention. Of course, much more research needs to be done. Many more evidences needs to be put, uh, put forward, but this is very 
encouraging to see these early early successes. Now you said stem cell intervention. Tell tell us exactly what you did to help restore this uh, quadriplegic. And quadriplegic means that the injury to the spinal cord was high enough that none of the limbs work. The stem cells are those magic seeds in a way that uh, originally we thought that if we implant them, let's say, into an injured tissue, they will regrow and unable to enable essentially the tissue to repair. We are increasingly seeing that it's not simply a brick-and-mortar interaction. They They are truly engaging the healing processes from within. So you actually heal. The cells help you heal by yourself. The, the way the skin, when we cut it, will, will heal on its own. Here, very complex organ tissues like the, the spinal cord has some attempts to, to heal. And um, in essence, we are using these technologies to promote essentially this uh, this healing we still do not know what gets to ultimately uh, ensure the repair but clearly it's promising is it the nerve is is it nerves that are being repaired or muscles what what exactly is happening in this particular case the tissue that allows the nerve conduction in other cases as you mentioned could be the end organ the muscle for example but think of stem cells as only one technology you know we used to put uh, an equal sign between regenerative medicine and stem cell medicine but increasingly there are many more technologies that are being developed you may not even need those seeds you may be able to extract what really works within them the active ingredient and uh, use it as a, as a way to, to, to repair. So we speak of acellular regeneration, regeneration without stem cells. Hmm. So isn't it interesting that most tissues in our body have the ability to repair themselves, but the spinal cord does not? So what you did was you took some stem cells, injected them adjacent to the severed spinal cord, and helped it repair itself? The concept that some organs cannot repair is increasingly being challenged. Hmm. We, even uh, the spinal cord? Even the spinal cord. We went to school, medical school, they told us the spinal cord cannot repair. Mm-hmm. We, they told us you will die with the heart you were born with. In other words, the heart cannot repair. But increasingly we're understanding there is an innate ability of self-renewal. So each of our tissues may be at a very, in a very subtle way can somewhat repair itself. And the goal of regenerative medicine is to boost that ability of self-repair. So we all want to be like the liver, because the liver can regenerate. Can you learn some lessons from the liver? Indeed, from the liver, from the skin, from organs that typically are much uh, more readily renewable than others will be a guide how to, to proceed. What are other muscular uses? I mean, it, in my head, I'm thinking aging. I mean, so is how is this going to affect how we age? The goal with aging is not necessarily to extend lifespan. I think the goal and where regenerative medicine comes uh, central is to extend health span to match lifespan. And so we see it in many chronic diseases. And we see essentially regenerative medicine as a way not to fight disease. You know, we used to say we fight cancer, we fight cardiovascular disease, we fight diabetes, many of the diseases that come with with aging. Here, regenerative medicine is enabling us to speak more of rebuilding health, 
that's the essence, really, of, of the regenerative process. And when we say rebuilding health, is not just restoring form and function of a specific organ or tissue, but ideally, ultimately, rebuilding the human being in its, in its totality, so a holistic almost process mm-hmm. of regenerative medicine. Now, I know you've been working for a long time on repairing heart muscle. Can you give us an update there? Because once someone has a heart attack and part of the muscle dies, the, the heart, we've always been told, can't regenerate. What's dead is dead, but may not be true. Yeah, we have had indeed a remarkable experience with uh, heart regeneration and in particular in a condition called heart failure. So this will be a condition after a heart attack where part of the muscle, as you mentioned, dies out. And what do we do for that part of the muscle? So really what we're doing, we're leveraging the self-repair capacity of the heart by introducing other stem cells, or now more increasingly these acellular approaches, the, the activating the juice of the stem cells, and achieving a repair that is indeed uh, very significant in many cases. But again, more research will be needed to fully establish these technologies going forward. So it may be that you're not going to die with the heart you were born with. Indeed. And what about uh, or the need for organ transplant? Are we going to get to a spot where we can grow the organ that we need? That's a huge field of interest and unmet need. And uh, tissue engineering being one component of the regenerative toolkit is indeed able to to make us dream and now no more dream anymore. Actually, there are very concrete examples of new organs that are built in this way. An effort here at the Mayo Clinic uh, is to build a new um, voice box, a new larynx. And uh, at the national level, this effort has been recognized and Mayo Clinic has been given the green light actually to launch the first uh, letting transplant through regenerative technology in this space. So, now That's amazing. So would this be someone who had injured their larynx or someone who had cancer of the larynx and had to be removed? Indeed, that will be a case, let's say, of an individual with a cancer of the larynx. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the voice is lost at that time. And uh, through this regenerative intervention, you can be fortunate to may need to remove maybe just half of the larynx and replace it with uh, with a new half. One that you grew in the lab? That you grew in the lab and that you take advantage also of the body parts of the individual. And ultimately, uh, voice can be regained. So restoring not just form, but ultimately function is very critical. I have to ask, because I just read this, uh, on the news network that um, stem cells can help with hair loss. Are we, go- are we talking about all the way down to hair loss? <laughs> so there is a lot of interest in that field. Of course there, there is, is a lot, lot of, of people interest. dealing with hair loss. And again, it, it showcases successes across Mayo efforts that are happening uh, throughout uh, in Mayo Clinic here, but also Mayo Clinic in Florida and Arizona, a lot of efforts in many fields. Hair loss is, uh, is an area that our campus in Florida has been particularly uh, driven with uh, initial, indeed, uh, successful uh, um, 
experiences, so more to come. Someday may not need a hair transplant. Wow. You can just make those cells keep growing hair that you got on your scalp. <laughs> Kidney transplant, hair transplant. It'll all work out. <laughs> Regenerative medicine, the process of replacing or regenerating human cells, tissues, or organs to restore function. Regenerative medicine is also working on being able to grow tissues and organs in the lab and implanting them into someone who can't heal on their own. Exciting stuff. Our thanks to the director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative of Medicine, Dr. Andre Terzik. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.